You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. A lot has changed since the first century. That's one of the things that makes the Bible difficult sometimes. It was written in a world very different from the world we live in. Some things have not changed, and one of those things is the allure of the ladder to success. You know the ladder of success. Get a new job, you've got some expectations, you work hard, you pay your dues, maybe you get a promotion, maybe you work a little harder, maybe you get another one, and eventually maybe you get a management or an executive position. What do your friends say about you? He climbed the ladder all the way to the top. In the ancient world, they had a ladder too. It was called the course of honor. And it involved a series of public offices overseeing different aspects of public life. And if you wanted to be somebody, you had to climb the ladder. A lot of things have changed since the New Testament was written. But the allure of power Influence, greatness, hasn't changed a bit. And all of us, in one way or another, have been tempted by that. Whether it's in a smaller setting, maybe not corporate, but something else. Or have been impacted by someone else who's been consumed by that allure. Mark is not kind to Jesus' disciples. All through the second half of his gospel, they are painted with dark brushstrokes. In Mark chapter 10, we see how This desire, this allure for greatness corrupts even Jesus' closest inner circle. So Jesus has to do some instructing, doesn't he? He has to teach them some things about greatness, doesn't he? And he has to teach them that greatness isn't about climbing any ladder. It takes the posture of a servant to be great. Mark sets the stage. The disciples are traveling with Jesus as they often do. And James and John come to him and they say to him, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Now this one, every time I read this, I laugh. Because it reminds me of my kids. You probably have had a time where children or grandchildren came to you and said, Mommy, Grandmommy, say yes. 
Right? They know you're not going to say yes to whatever it is they're going to ask. So they're going to try to get you to commit before they ask. Daddy, say, go ahead and just say yes. Well, what do you want me to do? Just say yes. <laughs> James and John come to Jesus. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. They haven't said what they're going to what they want yet. They just want him to, to affirm the thing that they want. Jesus, like a wise parent, doesn't bite. <laughs> what is it you want me to do for you? They go ahead and tell him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, this is one of those passages where we kind of maybe, we struggle to figure out what exactly they're after here. This is one of those places where the way the Bible speaks about different concepts and things is kind of different than the way we do. What are they talking about in your glory? I mean, isn't Jesus in His glory now? I mean, He's enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. Are they talking about heaven? Are they talking, what are they, what are they getting at in your glory? Well, it's helpful to know that in the Bible, in the Old Testament and in the New, but particularly sometimes in the Psalms, the word glory, when it's used for human beings, is really about being a king. It's about authority. It's about dominion. It's about sovereignty. Psalm 8 is a great example. It's a familiar text. The psalmist is considering how insignificant humanity looks when he gazes at the stars and the heavens. When I look at your, the, your heavens, verse 3, Psalm 8, verse 3, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars that you've established, what are human beings that you are mindful of, the mortals that you care for them? It's this, I can't believe you pay so much attention to such insignificant creatures with all this spectacular glory out there. But you've come and made a covenant with us and you've committed to be our God and shown us your perfect unfailing love. You've rescued us from our enemies. You've, you've made us your people. Why do you consider us? Verse 5, yet you've made them a little lower than God. Crown them with glory and honor. There's that word, glory. What's it mean? The next verse tells us. You've given them dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under their feet. All sheep, oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And if we're keeping the whole narrative of Scripture in mind, we're probably thinking of Genesis, aren't we? That God makes human beings in His image. It says, have dominion, authority. Beasts of the field, creepy crawlies, they're yours. All the stuff, you're the king. I'm entrusting it to you. Look after it for me. That's what the Bible means often when it talks about glory with regard to human beings. It's that kingship that Adam had and Eve had in Genesis 1. Into. It's the thing the psalmist is talking about when he 
says, you've made human beings and we seem so insignificant compared to the galaxy, yet you've invested us with dominion and authority over the world that you've made in the works of your hand. And when James and John come to Jesus and say, let us sit at your right hand and your left, when you come in your glory, they're talking about the kingdom. When you become the king, when the crown goes on your head, we want to have the top jobs. It's kind of like, if a friend of yours were running for president and you and someone else came along and said, hey, we've been here the whole time. You're doing pretty good in the polls. You get the job. You get elected. I want to be vice president. She wants to be secretary of state. Exactly. This. That's the kind of thing that's going on. They are gunning for top political jobs in the kingdom that Jesus, that they think Jesus is about to create. They think he's going to go up to Jerusalem, kick the bad guys out of town, and set up a new order just like other Jewish groups have done last 100, 200 years. Jesus says, think you're up for it? You really have no idea what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'll be baptized with? And they're just jumping. They're like, yes, we want the nomination. We can do it. And they're forgetting that in their Bibles, in the Old Testament, when that word cup shows up, it's often the cup of God's wrath poured out as a consequence for sin. And Jesus is beginning to help them, or He's trying to help them see that His kingdom doesn't come in like everybody else's does. It's not one of these, get a posse together and pull out your swords and your spears and ride into Jerusalem and fight the Romans. Jesus wants them to begin to understand and He's going to explain this even more as this goes along and they still don't get it. They don't understand what He's after. He wants them to begin to understand that His kingdom comes through a cross. That's why He says you have no idea what you're asking. Because at the end of Mark's Gospel, when Jesus has King of the Jews posted above His head, He's not on a throne. His arms are stretched and His body is bleeding out. And who is at His right and His left in that moment? Brigands. Victims of capital punishment. I have no idea what they're asking. Jesus, just say yes. <laughs> the cup that I drink, you will drink. The baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. Verse 39. But to sit at my right hand or my left, Jesus says, it's not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. We learn about that as the story goes on. Now, James and John are trying to climb the ladder, aren't they? Kind of working their way in. The other guys maybe are falling behind on the road or maybe they're in kind of a little distance, maybe just out of earshot. And they're like, hey Jesus, while well, you got a second, there's something we've been wanting to talk to you about. And then the others kind of hear, hey, what are they? 
Are they asking for the left and right hand jobs? The others find out and they come over and the text tells us when the ten heard about this, right? Two of them are asking for jobs. The ten are off to the side. They come along. When the ten hear it, they begin to be angry with James and John, right? Why? Because Peter wanted to be the Secretary of State. Judas wanted to be the vice president. Really, he did. <laughs> we begin to see that when people get consumed with this allure for greatness, you know, climb the ladder, I gotta get to the top. It doesn't matter. These guys have been my friends, my family members, my partners in, in business for years. But the first moment that comes along for James and John, when they can get a side word in with Jesus and try to work their way into the advantage and to their advantage and the disadvantage of their friends, they do it. Because the allure for greatness is deeper than they have any idea. And maybe you're saying, you know, I don't have any allure for greatness. But what they are experiencing is simply one manifestation of the self-orientation that everybody comes into the world with. We all come into the world focused on me and what I can get out of it and how I can take care of my bit. Look out for number one. My way, right away. And this is one expression of that common, single, self-oriented, central sin. Me, 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 me. And what does it do? It creates division in Jesus' band of followers. Like all of a sudden, I mean, they're only a couple of chapters away from the cross. I mean, soldiers are going to be showing up here before too long to arrest Jesus, and they take off running. And like, this is not a time to be bickering over who's going to have what jobs. This is a time to be focused and faithful and committed. And what are they doing? They are embattled and divided. They don't care about the kingdom. They only care what they can get out of it. All they care about. So James and John are jockeying for position. The others are mad because they didn't get the chance to jockey for position first. And they've got to learn that greatness isn't about climbing some ladder. It's not about doing the thing manipulating my circumstances to my advantage. They've got to learn something else about greatness. They've got to learn it from Jesus. It's about a posture of servanthood. So Jesus calls them around. Still sounding like a parent. A patient one. Come on. Stop. Stop. Back up. Sit down. Kind of go to your corners, kids. <laughs> we got a little talking to do. Then heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus calls them and he says to them, You know about the Gentile, the nations, Rome. You know that among the Gentile nations, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them. The great ones are tyrants over them. And Got in mind this jockeying for position, for public honor. 
talked about it a little bit already. This Roman course of honor, this, this very instantiated ladder hierarchical, you know, you start out, you get a, a group of 20 or so folks, maybe they're in charge of the finances in the city, some administrative responsibilities. You do that for a year or so, and then a little while later, you're eligible to be elected for the next job on the next rung, and not as many people are eligible for that one, and there's a little bit more responsibility, and you do that well for a year or so, and then you're eligible for the next one, and the next one, and the next one. At the very top of the ladder is the emperor himself. And only one guy ever gets there. But the higher you go, the more honor you have. The more influence you have, the greater you become. And Jesus is trying to help them see that in the thing that He's building, the kingdom that He's creating, the work that He's doing, things don't work like that. Greatness isn't about getting votes. It's not about getting a nomination. It's not about being born into the right family. It's not about having enough money. Because those are all the things you needed to get on that Roman ladder of honor. Family, status, cash. Often you had to like buy a monument to the emperor. It would help you get elected. <laughs> Quid pro quo. This is where it came from. right? <laughs> but then it was just the accepted standard of behavior. How you become great. And Jesus wants them to say, look, we've been doing the kingdom proclamation since chapter 1. We're now in chapter 10. And you still don't get it. The kingdom of God doesn't work like the Roman Empire. Thanks be to God, it doesn't work like the United States Congress. <laughs> or any other temporal government structure that we have been presented with doesn't work by people vying for position. Jesus says, instead of that, instead of people jockeying for influence and position and stepping on their friends and betraying their family and all those kinds of things, taking advantage of people and uh, you know, running the whole organization off tracks because my agenda is the main thing. Jesus says, not so among you. Verse 43. The Gentiles, the nations, Rome, those are tyrants and they're self-oriented, self-focused, me, my way, or else kinds of people. That's how the kingdoms of this world work. Jesus says, not so among you. You want to be great? Hit your knees. Find a way to serve. Lower yourself. Quit vying for positions. Don't self-promote. Go clean something. Wash someone's feet. Prepare someone a meal. Teach a small group. <laughs> Run the slideshow. Help set up the chairs. Join a mission team. Do something that costs you something. 
not this way for you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you must become the slave of all. And then he says that verse we know so well. For the Son of Man, verse 45, came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. In that moment, Jesus embodies the central bottom line. Greatness is not about climbing the ladder. If it were, He could have just stayed in heaven. He was already at the top of the ladder. Second person of the Trinity. Equal in glory and honor and power and eternity and omnipotence. And all majesty belongs to Him. But instead of taking advantage of His position, Philippians 2, He humbled Himself and became a servant. Born in human flesh in a feeding trough, in a backwater town, somebody's barn. Greatness is not about climbing ladders. It's about the posture of a servant. And Jesus isn't just an example for us. That's Sermons like this, that's a key issue. It's not, well, Jesus was a great servant, so you should fill out the form and join a serve team. And No, you don't have what it takes to fill out the form and join the serve team because we come into the world self-oriented. We need Jesus to give His life as a ransom for us. He's not just saying, I'm a good example, I'm a good teacher. No, He's saying, I'm here to do something for you. You, you guys can't fix your problem, James and John. You are consumed with self-interest. And you need more than an example. You need a Savior. And that's what I've come to do. I love it that it does not say the Son of Man didn't come to be a great example for you. Sometimes that's just how we treat Jesus. Just do like What would Jesus do? Now that's a great question to ask. If you have the bracelet, that's great. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, look it up on the internet. Yes, we want to be thinking, what is, what is Jesus doing? What does He want us to do? But we have to understand that before we can follow Him, before we can let our lives be modeled after His life, we need His blood to cleanse our sin. We need His sacrifice. The Son of Man has come to serve you by giving His life in your place. Ransom for me. One in place of the many. That's where this thing is going. Why the crown of the kingdom doesn't come with an army of Jewish peasants. The crown of the kingdom of God comes through a cross made of wood. Because you don't get to that throne by climbing some series of offices. You get there by laying down your life. Preferences, plans, agendas, whatever. Thinking about this this week, 
The word faith doesn't come up in this passage, but that's really what it's about, isn't it? Jesus is calling on these guys to trust Him. Everything in them tells them this guy, doesn't He know how the world works? <laughs> doesn't He know you don't get influence unless you pull some strings or network or get the right connections or pay your due? Doesn't, that's the world they operate in. And He's inviting them to trust Him with a whole new set of values, with a whole new way of doing kingdom. He's inviting them to have faith in Him so that He can be the one who orients their world. Right? It's easier to climb the ladder than to trust Jesus. It's easier because we prefer to be in control. Like This is my little sphere. And this is where I'm in charge. Jesus wants to come back and say, I need you to lay that down. I need you to trust me. The ladder is so alluring because we can manipulate it. Jesus invites us to relinquish Lordship, them. Open your hands. Lay down your life. This kind of servanthood takes that kind of faith. Got to trust Jesus that He has what's best when I'm not in control. It's hard for some of us. It's a big deal. It also takes spirit-enabled discipline, commitment, and follow-through. That's why we have these forms. <laughs> the church, the kingdom of God, doesn't function to its full capacity if the people of God to whom God has entrusted His kingdom don't commit to it. And so that faith, trust you, Jesus, has got to be worked out in day-to-day, -day engaged, committed service. Jesus says, this is what the kingdom looks like. And I'm going to show you by offering my own life to serve you. And you'll drink the cup I drink. You will come to the place where you serve the way I serve. I don't know what that looks like. Read the book of Acts. These guys who had no idea what was going on, that filled with the Holy Spirit, and gave everything for Jesus. So let me encourage you to seriously consider what service looks like for you. When we talk about following Jesus, we talk about changing the world. That can only happen so much if this is the extent of our discipleship. This is, a, this is essential. We have to gather and worship. 
is how we are renewed and how we, are, we, we discover Jesus in new ways. If our worship is not aligned properly, nothing will be aligned properly. But if that's all we do, hour or two on Sunday morning, there's a lot of hours in the week. Jesus says, you've got to take the next step. So what does he do with these guys? He puts them in a group. There's 12 of them right there. Not a very functional group. They're fighting over who gets to be in charge. But they're a group. And what's the context of his deeper instruction? The group. These guys have been worshiping together for a long time. They've still got some problems, and they've got to work that out in that small group. And that becomes the place where they are called to take the third step, isn't it? Time to serve, boys. Time to serve. This one passage encapsulates everything we're talking about when you hear those three words, worship, connect, serve. Like, this is how we follow Jesus. This is how we change the world. And if we want to change the world to the fullest extent the Lord wants to work through us, those three steps have got to be consistently in place for all of us. I've got to be gathering with the church to worship receiving the grace that He gives through singing and praying and sacraments and preaching and all these things. I've got to be in that group. Right? Because if I don't get in a group, my junk ain't going to come out anywhere. My self-interest <laughs> in a safe place where Jesus can really deal with it and heal me. And I've got to hear His calling to take the next step. To actually get out to look past myself. Serve. So as we come to the table, as we taste the meal that extends this grace that Jesus is describing when He says, I'm going to give my life as a ransom for you. We come to this table. You put that bread in your mouth and you taste that juice and you think, this is what servanthood looks like. It looks like brokenness. It looks like self-giving love. It looks like counting my neighbor more important than myself because that's what Jesus does. And in this meal, He gives me the grace to follow in His steps. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.